I have been accused of being somewhat of a bit positive person by nature to the irritation of those around me. I've been called obnoxiously cheerful. And apparently I wear on people who are miserable. <laughs> Holly says I'm a lot of fun to live with in small dosages. So, so, so apparently there is something about me that causes some people to not feel really good about themselves. I, I have folks in my life that have committed their life to make sure I'm not too happy. And they ought to remind me that that light at the end of the tunnel, that, that's got to be a train coming. You can bank on, on, on that. Why, why? Why do people so embrace being miserable so that people like me tend to irritate them so? Do you remember the comic strip, Peanuts? Now, that was the game. Charlie Brown and Lucy, Linus, Peppermint Patty, Schroeder, famous dog, of course, Snoopy. You know, the creator of those popular, famous characters was Charles Schultz. He uh, died 13 years ago. And I was reading somewhat of a, a recent uh, biography about him that he had accumulated by the year 1971 over 100 million readers in literally thousands of magazines. In 1989, Schultz made $62 million in that one year. And then he settled in for an annual income of 26 to $40 million a year for the rest of his life. Wouldn't you like to add that to your testimony? <laughs> and yet he described himself as being romantically disappointed. Said the genius of his characters we're told, was their lifelong dissatisfaction with life. In other words, it's what he called the, quote, the stuff of which adulthood is made. To see cute little characters so disappointed, so discouraged with the reality of, of life, we found very, very entertaining. Almost kind of like a cathartic release for us. What I want to know, is that true? Is life nothing more than one huge disappointment? And that's all we're really accumulating is basically misery. And if you live long enough, you get knocked around enough, you're going to just be ending up as miserable as anybody else so that people who are cheerful are very irritating to you. Now, I, I, I'm well aware that we live in somewhat of a dangerous, discouraging world, but, but, does that have to literally rob us of an ability to extract enjoyment from this first gift God has given us called life? I am well aware there's some Christians who are all excited about heaven and the next life. We talk about you're being so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You've got to understand this first life is also a gift from God. He's given us five senses to extract enjoyment from the life that he's given to us as a reward. Now, Here's the question of the morning. Is this first gift, is this life a gift or is it not? Is it a gift to enjoy or is it really a curse to somehow survive? There is a wisdom in the scriptures that teaches us the skill, the art of interpreting the world around us, this first gift, in such a way that we can actually extract enjoyment from it 
The Apostle Paul called it contentment, a satisfied mind. Contentment. Now, contentment has nothing to do with ambition. Sometimes people think, well, contentment means to be lazy. No, not at all. But you're going to find out it's only the contented person that can have a sanctified ambition and be about building and going and pursuing things for others because they don't need it to be happy. That's the issue of contentment. The Apostle Paul receives this letter from, or actually writes a letter to this church in Philippi that he really loves because he had received from them their pastor and financial support. Felt very loved by these folks. He wanted to share with them basically because he doesn't know for sure if he's going to get out of jail there in Rome. And he writes his letter, Philippians. And, and he shares with them a secret that he's learned. He, he says in the verse 11, chapter 4, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Apparently contentment is something you learn. You're not born with it. You don't develop it as you get older. The older you get, the more contented you become. No, this is something that is learned, he says. I know how to get along with humble means. Aha. But I also know how to live in prosperity. I know how to live in Scottsdale, he says. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. What secret? The secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having an abundance and suffering need. And then here's that famous verse we rip out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things he's talking about is contentment. Whether I have much, I've learned how to enjoy much. Whether I have nothing, I've learned how to enjoy nothing. I've learned contentment. Now, where did Paul learn this, this secret? Because I'll tell you, it's a secret that changed his life. It's a secret that's changed my life years ago. And if you want some kind of explanation, what makes Daryl the way he is so he's obnoxiously cheerful? It's because I learned this, what Paul learned, but from where did Paul learn this? Before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was a rabbinic student. He was some, basically a rabbi, Saul. And he would have studied under, he says, the great rabbi, uh, t rabbinic teacher Gamaliel. And Gamaliel would have had all of his students study the ancient writings of the wisest man who ever lived in Hebrew history, Solomon himself. And one of the things, the works, the writings that Paul would have studied even as a young man would be the personal journal of Solomon. We call it the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's the personal journal of Solomon. So if you have your Bibles, I want to walk you through. I want you to learn the secret because it's going to change your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Turn to Ecclesiastes. We have this journal of Solomon. We call it Ecclesiastes. It's probably the widest part of your Bible because people skip over it. And they skip over it because the way it begins. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And you think, Myrtle, let's read something else. That doesn't sound very interesting. But you understand, people misconstrue even one of the popular translations that the word havel, vanity, means meaninglessness. Life is meaningless, meaningless. That's not what the word havel means. It means vapor. That if you're going to be able to extract enjoyment from vapor, life goes through your fingers in the moment, like the moment of vapor. If you're going to enjoy it, you enjoy it like a fragrance of perfume. You enjoy it in the moment. 
It is only in that opportunity of the moment will you ever extract enjoyment from life. You won't do it in the future. You won't do it in the past. It's Havel. Life is vaporous. Well, Solomon says, this is what I've learned because after living his life, and what a life. This guy, it was a fantasy. This first gift of life, he extracted about every opportunity we could ever dream of. I mean, the guy's the wealthiest man alive at his time. The, the, the man is king. Nobody really tells him what to do. He's the boss. He can do whatever he wants. God gives him a double portion of wisdom, which means he's the smartest guy around. He had riches, glory, fame. The man had a thousand women in his life, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and I'm not going any further with that. He built magnificent homes, pools, gardens, the secular historian Flavius Josephus writes about Solomon and said he had horses and chariots and that what he would do from time to time, he would take young men with long flowing hair and he'd put them on all these beautiful chariots and then he would sprinkle gold dust in their hair. Sounds like a Karen Carpenter song to me. But the point is, he would sprinkle this gold in his hair and then they would go with all these chariots and the sun reflecting off this gold in their hair and guess who was right in the middle in his gold chariot? This is a Sunday afternoon drive and that is Solomon himself. This guy had everything. Folks, I'm not making this stuff up. In his own testimony, Solomon says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. How would you like to add that to your testimony? So Solomon comes to the end of his life. It's like he takes a diary, writes a journal. And he basically summarizes, let me tell you, after living this life as much as anyone could live this life, he says, let me tell you what I've learned. And he says, bottom line, life is vaporous. It goes by fast. Unless you're good, unless you've got the art, the skill of wisdom to extract enjoyment, it's going to fly right by you and you'll extract nothing and you're going to end up like everybody else who's irritated at Pastor Darrell. Well, he wouldn't have said that. But the point being is you're going to end up miserable. Life passes by. I was, I, I was told in the first service, this gentleman grew up on an apple farm. And, and apparently when they harvest the apples, they put them in storage and after washing them and waxing them, they go down the conveyor belt. And you stand there, and as the apples are coming down, you got to stay focused. God's taking to get the best one, and then that's where they sort them. They sort them. You, you you don't look at the apples you missed or the ones that are down there, and saying, "Oh, you know that was a good year back in '67. I passed, and I was on a football team, and I lettered." And people living about the past, but not understanding how come you don't experience any enjoyment from memories. In the same way, if you're looking for the ones that are coming, you're going to miss sorting the ones, the good ones you have right in front of you. Oh, man, when my ship comes in, boy, I hope there's a good apple coming. Man, when I buy that house, when I get out of school, when I get married, then I'm going to be happy. Not going to happen because it is sorting the apples in front of you. Sorting and knowing which one, and only if you focus in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. Will you have that window to extract enjoyment? This is what he says in this journal. This is his bottom theme. Because Paul learned from, from Solomon, basically what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, Timothy, teach those in your church, those who are wealthy. It means you have discretionary fun. You have some choice. Your life isn't just survival. Those who have actually a choice 
to extract some enjoyment. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich first not to be conceited. That doesn't make you better than anyone else. Second of all, don't put your hope on riches. Boy, we learned that from 2007, right? But he says, put your hope in God. Now watch this. Who gives us all things to be enjoyed. Boy, that doesn't sound like church, does it? People act like they've been baptized in pickle juice because, you know, you know God wants to reign in your praying. Life's got to be horrible and miserable. That makes me spiritual. That makes you a fool. Because the reality, Paul says, God says to Timothy, tell the people who are wealthy, don't be conceited. Don't, don't put your hope on riches. They come and they go. But put your hope in God because what he gives you, he gives you for the purpose of your enjoyment of it. But your enjoyment of it is going to take a kind of wisdom, a way to interpret the world around you, this life in such a way that you can actually ex extract this enjoyment. So look at what is the outward appearance of things. Look at the first two verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Solomon says there is, is an evil. Hebrew word is ra'ah. Speaks of something that creates pain and suffering. There, there's an evil which I have seen under the sun in this first gift, this life, this mortal life. There's an evil I've seen under the sun and it's prevalent. It's a bad case of the normals among mankind. Everybody deals with this. For example, he says, there's a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. This is a little autobiographical. Solomon's talking about himself here. Yet, he says, God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys his stuff. This is Havel, vaporous, severe affliction. So, so he says there's, there's an evil that you can have all kinds of stuff, riches and wealth and honor and everything your heart desires, but he says, if you're not empowered by God to enjoy, then you're going to miss the whole thing. What is this clue? What is a clue to this enjoyment of this good and beautiful? Well, he already made reference to it in the last chapter. Go back to chapter 5. Look at verse 18. Here Solomon says, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. So here's the spiritual wisest man. He says, here's what I've learned that's really great in life. To eat to drink, to enjoy oneself. Interesting, he starts off with to eat and to drink. It doesn't sound very spiritual. Well, remember his point of Havel? When you're eating, when do you enjoy eating? In the future? No, in the past. Well, not unless it's Mexican food after seven. Maybe you'll enjoy it for a couple of days. But the reality is that you enjoy eating in the moment. You enjoy the flavor of drinking in the moment. So he says, in the moment, enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun. During the few years of your life, it's going to go by, which God has given him, watch this, for this is his reward. What is? Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them, to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor for this is the gift of God. Did he says in this last verse of chapter 5, verse 20, what I want on my tombstone. For he will not often consider the years of his life. 
He's not going to be all bugged that he's getting older and life's passing by. He'll not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. This guy is so enjoying his life. He's not worried that it's passing by in misery. He's having too much enjoyment of it. And every day is a new day and a new apple. Well, well, well what's going on here between these two guys? Because uh, the, the, uh, the first, well, the guy in chapter 6, he, he's got riches and wealth and honor and everything his heart desires. This first guy in chapter 5, he's got riches and wealth. Now that's interesting. I would expect the second guy to be happier than the first guy. Because the second guy's got more stuff than the first guy. The first guy has riches and wealth. Second guy has riches and wealth and honor and everything else his heart desires. So of course the second guy ought to be happier. But he's not. Because the second guy is not empowered by God to enjoy. So foreigners, everybody else enjoys his stuff. He just pays the bills. But this first guy who's got less stuff, his riches and wealth, but he is empowered by God to extract enjoyment and thus extract his reward and rejoice at the gift that God has given him. Well, why does God do it to one guy and not to the other guy? You see, with every gift, there's two parts. There's the gift itself, and then there's the capacity, the ability to enjoy that gift. You go to Ruth Chris, and you order a great steak. It's a gift from me. You just enjoy that big steak. They put the butter on it, remember, and sizzles all over the place. But if that day you'd been to the dentist and had all your teeth extracted, that steak, which was supposed to be a gift, becomes a curse. Because all you could do is gum on it all night, right? And that's not going to be much enjoyment of a steak. You see, there's two parts to every gift. The gift itself, the steak, and then the teeth, the capacity to enjoy the gift. And this word in Hebrew, empowered, is the word shalat. The first guy gets shalotted. The second guy doesn't get shalotted. Now the word shalot means to be basically given the ability, the capacity to extract enjoyment from a gift as it was intended to be enjoyed. Well, why, why, why does God shalot the first guy with, and not the second guy? Well, well, we'll look at the inward reality of things, verses 3 to 6. Solomon says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, back in his culture, a sign of a guy really blessed is he's got a lot of kids and he lives a long time. So look at the hyperbole here. This guy's, he's got lots of kids. This guy's got hundreds of kids. And he lives a long, long time, how many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied. His nephesh, his being, is not satisfied not even with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial. His life is so miserable, his death doesn't mean anything to anyone. Then I say, and this is a little bit shocking, Solomon says, better the miscarriage than he. It, for it comes in futility, goes in obscurity. Talking about the child who, who never comes out of the womb alive. The child misses this first gift, totally. Misses life, dies in the womb of its mother, Better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility, it goes in obscurity, its name is covered in obscurity, it never sees the sun and it never knows anything. But, 
It is better off than he. The one never even born is better off than the one who lives this life and has never understood how to be empowered by God to extract enjoyment from the gifts, the rewards from God in this life. Verse 6, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. What's going on here? Why does he have an unsatisfied mind? Well, well, it's because he's got an eye problem. He's got an eye problem because he's got a nose problem. And because of his nose problem, he's got a heart problem. His heart problem is unsatisfied, unsatisfied soul. Well, that's because of his nose and his eye problem. What are you talking about, Daryl? Well, look at the truth about things in verses 7 to 9. All a man's labor is for his mouth to be consumed. And yet the appetite is not satisfied. That appetite is that thing in us that wants more. We need more. I need more, more, more if I'm ever going to be satisfied, if I'm ever going to ever be happy. The appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does a wise man have over the fool? And what advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Now here's the proverb. Here's the secret. Paul's talking about what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility, havel, and a striving after wind. He says the point is what the eye sees is more important than what the heart desires, the soul desires. What's going on? The reason for the unsatisfied mind is simply this. What's the eye problem? Notice when it says that he does not enjoy good things. You know the Hebrew word enjoy? You know what that Hebrew word literally means? To see. He doesn't enjoy the good things God's given him because he doesn't see them. And the reason he doesn't see them is because of his soul's desires. He's lifting his eyes beyond what he's been given to the things he has not been given, his soul desires. I call it basically the nose problem, which causes the eye problem. The nose problem is this, like God gives us each a bag. And maybe you, you, you ladies, you, you have a Toomey bag. I learned two days ago, Toomey's an expensive bag because I almost gave one away to my wife's horror. Give, give one of your bags because it was her bag. I didn't know it was a Toomey bag. But let's say you have this Toomey bag. Guys, we've got a gunny sack. Whatever it is we got. You got this bag. And God places in this bag his rewards, his blessing, his gifts to you. The only problem is that I never look in my bag. Because my eyes see, do not see what I have. Because I want to see what I don't have. My soul desires. So I stick my nose in everybody else's bag. So I want to know what do you have in your bag. Oh, I wish I was, could run as fast as you. Oh, I wish I had your home. Oh, I wish I had your job training. I wish I had, you know, the look like. I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish. And it's like everybody, I want what's in everybody else's bag. So my nose is in everybody else's bag. And I never stick my nose in my own. So I never see what I even have. And therefore God does not empower me to enjoy the rewards he's put in 
my bag. My nose problem is I have it stuck every place else. My eye problem is because I'm not even looking at what he's given me. Creates his heart problem of an unsatisfied mind. So what is the key to this whole thing? What is the wisdom, the art, the skill? Go back to chapter 2 here in Ecclesiastes. Solomon already mentioned it before in verse 24. When he said this in Ecclesiastes 2, there is nothing better. What do you think he means when he says there's nothing better? Means there's nothing better for a man than to eat, to drink. There it is again, the moment. And tell himself that his labor is good. Why? This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And that's what he picks up on in chapter 5 when he says in verse 8, here's what I've seen. To eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself during your few years in this life, for this is your reward. Listen to verse 19 again. Furthermore, as for every man whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them, to receive his reward, to rejoice in his labor, and to see it's a gift from the hand of God. Why did Paul ever say what he said in 1 Thessalonians 6.18? 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Because people say, I want to know the will of God. What's the will of God? sure Paul got this all the time. What's the will of God? Well, the word of God's the will of God, but no, no, I want, where does it clearly say something's the will of God? All right, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Paul says, all right, you want to know the will of God? This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. He says, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. Now why? Does God have some need for us to be grateful? God complains to the angels, to Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel, you know those people down there, I give them all kinds of stuff. They never thank me for anything. They got their noses stuck in everybody else's bags. Do you really think God has a need for us to give him thanks? No, he's the one who wakes up each morning, the holy, 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 from the seraphim, as if he wakes up every morning. The point being is he doesn't need our praise and our gratefulness. So if he doesn't need it, why does he command it to be his will for our lives? Because we do. Because God knows that when I see, look in my bag and I see what God has given me in my life, God shallots me. When I see that what he's given to me from the hand of God and I express gratefulness to him for it, he empowers me to extract enjoyment from it. So much so that I'm actually distracted with the, my heart being so gladdened that I really don't need anything more. Not to be happy. Not to have a satisfied soul. See, this is an eye and a nose problem that creates the heart problem. We don't see what we have. That's the eye problem. Because we only see what we don't have. That's the nose problem. And therefore, we're unsatisfied, not content. And that's the heart problem. Remember some years ago that film titled Meet Joe Black? 
Joe Black basically is, is death. Death comes to visit William Parrish. William Parrish, played by Anthony Hopkins, is this wealthy, wealthy publishing tycoon. And death comes to basically take his life. Well, death appears in the form of Brad Pitt. Now, my wife told me, boy, death never looked so good. But death shows up, and he's going to take William Parrish's life, but William Parrish is kind of enjoying his life, so death decides to take a vacation for, for a couple of weeks to hang out with William Parrish. And then on his 60th birthday, he'll take his life. He'll take his, take him. Well, finally the 60th birthday comes. And the only people know that this is the night that William Parrish is going to be, death will take him. Uh, the only people know is death and William Parrish. Nobody else knows. Well, I had this big 60th party, and, and I mean, this guy's wealthy, so we got fireworks, and we've got every who's who knows knows. They're all there. And then here's the big cake, 60 candles. It's really a big deal. And then William Parrish blows out the candle. And then he says this. I'm going to break precedence and tell you my one candle wish, that you would have a life as lucky as mine, where you could wake up one morning and say, I don't want anything more. You see, it's possible. What's possible? Contentment. You can wake up each morning and not need anything more to be happy. I need nothing more to be happy for God has caused me to enjoy what I've been given because I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. He shallots me, empowers me to so enjoy what I do have that I really don't need. I still can be ambitious. I can still pursue and build and grow and develop things, but instead of being so self-consumed, I do it because I need to do it. I'm freed up to do it because it's right to do it, to serve humanity, to serve others. It's not some narcissistic need in me why I'm ambitious, because I and my soul am content. I need nothing more to be happy because God so empowers what I do have that my heart is always gladdened. And that's why I'm so cheerful. And that's why I irritate miserable people. And I don't want to be irritating to you. But I do want you to be irritating to each other. But if we can begin to purge this misery, then just maybe people will actually see grateful people who are grateful for Jesus Christ. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to make sure you get this. Because this is one of my life messages. I want you to picture a bag in front of you. Leather bag, gunny sack, toomey bag, whatever it is. Picture this bag in front of you. I want you to visualize this bag. Now, do you notice something's wrong? You know what's wrong with your bag? Oh, there it is. It's got a zipper. There's a zipper on this bag, and the bag is zipped. It's closed. You can't see what's in there because it's zipped up. Hmm. How long has your bag been zipped up? 
You haven't really noticed, have you? Because you've had your nose in everybody else's bags. I want you to right now take your thumb and your index finger and I want you to take that zipper. I want you to unzip that bag. Then with your right and left hand, I want you to pry it open. Open that bag. Now look inside of it. What's there? For me, I see Holly given to me as a gift from the hand of God 43 years ago. I, in my eye, I see Holly gave me two sons. I see my two sons gave me two daughters. My two daughters gave me six grandchildren. And they all love me. I, I see a, a love for the Word of God. I see an ability to, to teach. I, I see a funny Cajun father who gives kind of a Cajun funny weird sense of humor about things. I see a mom who loved me all her life until I lost her back in 84. I see health. I see friends. I see people who believe in me. I see people that I believe in. What's in your bag? Now, realize they've been placed there by the hand of God as a reward to you. And God is ready to let you begin to enjoy like you never enjoyed before in the moment when you begin to express gratefulness for everyone. And you'll find your heart gladdened. And Heavenly Father, that is, that we might be a grateful people, that people might see the joy and the enjoyment in our lives and they could see that we have been saved, we've been delivered and given wisdom The wisdom of Solomon, Father, the wisdom that you created from the very beginning, how to enjoy this life and have a satisfied mind. Father, work among us, we pray in the name of Christ.